Okay, perhaps we should begin. <clears throat> I want to try and do a couple of things this evening, if we have time. If not, I shall carry it over into tomorrow night. But first of all, I want to talk about this evening about something which is fundamental to the state of confusion that I spoke about last night. And these are called distortions of mind in the Buddhist tradition. There's something that we're uncovering in our mindfulness practice is these particular fundamental distortions of the mind. And this is what the Buddha has to say about them. This is a quotation from the numerical discourses of the Buddha. It's actually a lot longer. I've only translated the first part of it. These four, O bhikkhus, monks, are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, and distortions of view. Seeing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure in suffering, assuming self where there is no self, sensing the unlovely as lovely. These, O bhikkhus, are the distortions of mind. I'll just read the list again because it's such an important list here. Sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure in suffering, assuming self where there is not self or no self, seeing the unlovely as lovely. A bit like the quotation last night, uh, we've got another week's worth here in just these four lines. Before I start to delve into this, let's talk about confusion. This word, which there's a number of synonyms in Pali for. Last night I was speaking very much in relationship to delusion and ignorance. Now these are two different words in Pali. One for delusion is moha. The one for ignorance is avijja. They both have the same sense, sense of fundamentally being confused. It's not that there is a flaw to human nature or some kind of original sin um, in the way that we are. It's just that we're not terribly well equipped most of the time to try and make sense of what's going on in our lives and orienting our way through the world. So this is not meant again, let's take the pejorative sting out of this, this is not meant to be pejorative in any sense when we talk about a fundamental sense of confusion. There is no wonder that we're confused. You know, not knowing the best things to do in life, we often try to do things. I mean, when I look around the world, despite the fact there's a lot of awful things going on, I don't necessarily see that uh, we have a lot of extremely malicious people. What we have is a lot of people trying to do their best and actually fouling up a lot of the time. Yeah, no doubt there are people who do have this malicious streak, but I think the majority of us don't. It's just with the kind of exigencies of life, the way that life comes to us, we try to do our best, but unfortunately our best is often not good enough. So we are confused, and as I say, no wonder that we're confused, because imagine this scenario. This is uh, the scenario. Life is a bit like being dropped into a foreign country. Fortunately, nobody ever gave you the map, you know, so you don't know where your way around. 
Um, you don't know the terrain in the slightest, so you stumble your way around, you find a valley, and you kind of launch into this valley, and you find yourself with people, and they seem to have never strayed outside, particularly of their own valley. Occasionally, they might have done, but very often they've just stayed within their own terrain. And actually, when we begin to speak to them, once we've you know, even begun to understand them, because they speak a language which is not particularly comprehensible, um, we discover that they're equally confused as us. Um, now, this is a little metaphor for life. You know, life is the terrain that we don't know how to find our way around. Um, the valley with the people who try to instruct you, but they've never really strayed outside of their own valley, are called parents. <laughs> yeah. They don't really actually have much to communicate to you other than their own confusion a lot of the time. Now, perhaps this is a rather cynical view, but I think it shows us our embeddedness in, in a fundamental sense of confusion, which is not a malicious ignorance, it's not a malicious delusion, it's a, it's a sense of confusion of not knowing our way around, not being able to find our way around the terrain that we live within. This is our confusion. As a result of this, as a result of not just parental upbringing, but societal you know, demands and pressures and indoctrination or what we might call conditioning, we also start to adopt you know, attitudes and views towards life or an outlook towards life where we strive after things perhaps which don't actually provide us what we want. Now, last night we spoke about, or I spoke about, um, about trying to find some degree of contentment. Equanimity, I think, is the closest word that we get in any Buddhist language to that sense of contentment. This being not buffeted by whatever happens in the world. However, in our search for what we might call happiness, peace, contentment, um, we try to find things which will give it to us. A lot of the time, this is placed on external objects. We're expecting external things to give us a degree of happiness and security and pleasure and contentment, perhaps, that they cannot actually fundamentally provide. So we're, if you like, misplacing our search for this sense of contentment or happiness or whatever you want to call it. It doesn't really matter what the name is, I think often it boils down to the same fundamental thing, which perhaps is a sense of peacefulness in this world, a sense of not having to be buffeted and strive so much. Now we place our, we place our expectation often in the things that we acquire as going to be those things which provide us with this fundamental sense of contentment, this fundamental sense of happiness. We gather them around us. You know, we shore ourselves in with our, with our goods or our stuff that we have. Um, however, have you noticed how these things, even when we acquire them, provide us with a degree of pleasure, a degree of happiness, dare I say it, for a short period of time, and then it diminishes quite rapidly? and then you have to go out and acquire something else. 
um, which is also you're expecting to give um, some degree of happiness. Now, the Buddha himself, in one particular sutta, in one particular discourse, likens this to a dog who's sitting outside of a butcher's shop. And the butcher throws the dog a bone that actually has no flesh on it whatsoever. It's just merely smeared with blood. And the dog chews it and chews it and chews it and chews it and gets absolutely no nutrition from it whatsoever. This is a very good metaphor, I think, again, for often what is going on in our lives. In the ways that we're caught, remember we were speaking about habits last night and patterns of thought and patterns of behavior. And often the habits that we acquire are, in a sense, things that we do again and again and again, hoping they're going to provide us with what we're looking for. You know, might be the habit of, I don't know, doing something again and again and again and again in the hope that it will yield the same degree of pleasure that it did when I first encountered it. You know, often people are caught into habit patterns and they continue their habit patterns in the sheer disbelief that then it's not actually going to provide what they're looking for. You know, I'll try it one more time. Yeah. And the one more time becomes one more time and one more time and one more time after that. And these habit patterns become deeply embedded character traits, as we were saying last night, um, that are very, very difficult to dislodge, very, very difficult to actually deal with. When we sit, we sit confronting those fundamental habit patterns, we sit confronting all of our attempts to gain pleasure and happiness and contentment, often being placed, as I say, on external things, often that search for something which is out there. We know it must be there somewhere. The thing that's actually going to cause me to settle and rest and never have to go out and buy another thing, acquire anything else, you know, never search for anything else. And yet, actually, what we're left with is often just a mere temporary respite. It's almost look like putting a sticking plaster on a hemorrhage. It doesn't actually work. It only works temporarily. Uh, that is all. Now, the Buddha is saying this is misguided. It actually provides us with not the very thing that we're looking for, the, re, the respite, the relief from having to pursue endless goals, pursue endless acquisitions, uh, pursue endless you know, money acquisition, whatever it might be. It doesn't provide us with the safety, the security, the, um, the peace that perhaps we look for from them. And this is not done out of any sense of maliciousness. This is not done out of any sense of what I would call a fundamental flaw in human nature. It's done out of just fundamental confusion. That's all. We confuse those things that we um, put our trust in as the things which are going to provide us with some kind of stability in our lives. 
Human beings are <laughs> um, perverse creatures, if you hadn't noticed. Um, we often look in the very things which can least provide us with the sort of things that we're actually looking for. We make demands in areas uh, of our lives for something to make us happy or even worse, for someone to make us happy that can actually never give it to us. Um, if you want to ever know the death knell of all relationship, it's make me happy. <laughs> yeah. That is kind of the death knell of relationship because it is no relationship once you put that demand on another. Happiness can be created out of relationship, but another cannot make you happy. Another cannot give you peace. Another cannot give you contentment. So the point about all of this, all of this preamble, which I've engaged in so far, all of this preamble is just really to say, actually, we misplace our trust. We place it in external things where the Buddha is very, very much bringing us to a sense of self-reliance. That actually this peace, this contentment, this happiness, if you want to continue to use that word, this happiness, this peace and contentment can only be found from inner resources. It cannot be found from without. Things cannot give it to you and someone else cannot give it to you. And all of our strategies, all of our deliberations, all of the complexities of the things that we go through in order to acquire you know, not just things but knowledge and people and everything else, none of these, the Buddha said, is going to lead to some sense of restfulness some sense of peacefulness. Most of them will continue to lead and fuel the agitated minds. Most of them will continue to feed our senses in a way that our senses remain, if you like, hungry. Yeah. We have hungry eyes, we have hungry ears, we have hungry noses and we have hungry tongues and we have hungry tactile senses. We thirst for all of these things. And the Buddha deliberately uses this word thirst in what he defines as being one of the fundamental conditions that bring about our dissatisfaction and bring about our dissatisfied, our, dis, our, our sense of pain in this world. What this is, is a fundamental sense of craving. A craving which is coming from lack within our experience. Human beings can often seem, and I would say about anything I'm saying here, check it out in your own experience, human beings can often have a hollowness within them, which is sought to be filled by all of the goods of the world and often by another person occupying a very central place in their lives as a means of filling that space, filling that hole within. This sense of incompleteness, this sense of insufficiency, is often what drives us into acquisition. This is often what drives us into all of the various you know, strategies, um, and stratagems to try and find some way of filling that sense of incompleteness, that sense of lack within us.
the notion of self, now I'm going in a very sort of circuitous route to getting back to where I started with this quote, but this sense of self that often seems so vital, so important, but is also such a burden to as much of the time, this sense of self often arises in states of craving and aversion. This is actually when you most feel yourself. Have you noticed? We kind of rumble or bumble around the world a lot of the time actually not feeling that much of a sense of self. But the moment you dislike something, there you are. You know, the moment I really want something, there you are again. You know. And so what this insufficiency is fueled by is craving. You know, the craving not to want and the craving to want things. The craving to fill up that sense of insufficiency, to the craving to fill up that sense of lack. Now that craving, that thirst, as the word is in Pali, as the word is tanha, which actually has a tremendous pathos in Pali that doesn't come across in the English word craving. In Pali, this word tanha is actually extremely sad. It's part of the human condition. The Buddha likens it to a barb in the heart that causes us to run around expending lots of energy and exhausting ourselves for no reason at all because it doesn't actually provide us with what we're looking for at all. Yeah. This is actually what motivates the Buddha himself in one telling passage in one of the earliest parts of the Pali Canon. In one telling passage, he talks very much about this. He says, he sees, he looks around the world and he sees that there is nowhere that is safe. There is nowhere that is safe. There is nowhere that is safe from the ravages of change. There is no shelter that he can find from the ravages of change. He sees people with enmity towards each other. He says, flailing around like fish in a shallow pool. Yeah. And he says, when he looks within their hearts, when he looks and sees what is the cause of this, what is the cause of all this enmity, he sees deeply embedded a barb, like a fish hook, in the heart. He says, which causes, the, causes them to run in all directions. He says, when this barb, this barb of craving is removed, the running around ceases, as does the exhaustion which accompanies it. A lovely telling example of what we're engaging in. To cease to run around, to cease to try and satisfy all of our cravings and all of our whims, no matter what they are, whether they're the whims for knowledge, you know, Knowledge, the search for that can come out of insufficiency. The sort search, as we see so much within our materialistic society, the search for material acquisitions that often not, don't just provide us with security, they provide us with status. So much so that there is a fundamental confusion that can occur. Um, this was identified by a French, French existentialist, actually somebody called Gabriel Marcel back in the 1950s. He entitled a book called Having and Being. 
And this could be very much a similar, very much um, the words of the Buddha. It's a very similar stance, which is actually human beings have begun to make a fundamental error, which is they've confused actually having with being. You know, we confuse the two verbs, to have and to be. You know, we assume that having is what we require for a sense of being rather than just being. So we acquire and we acquire and we acquire. And I don't know if you've ever had, as I did when certainly my own mother died, was they have, you know, having the responsibility of clearing out a house. Somebody's prized possessions, all of their acquisitions accumulated over a whole lifetime to somebody who doesn't want them is a heap of junk. <laughs> that is what it is. You know, all of these things that are acquired and which we hang on to and which we hold on to so, so firmly without wanting to relinquish. Um, all of these things um, are actually just junk when, we come, you know, when somebody comes to sort through them and sift through them at the end of your life, more often than not. Yet we go on acquiring we go on acquiring because of this fundamental misperception that these things are actually going to provide us with something. You know, going to provide us with the things I've mentioned right at the beginning of the talk this evening. They're going to provide us with the stability. They're going to provide us with the psychological security that I want. We might be acquiring people, accumulating those as well around us. You know, and the way that we cling to those. Unfortunately, of course, craving doesn't come on its own. It comes with clinging as well. That we cling to the things we have. Even the things we don't like any longer, we refuse to relinquish them. You know, it's very, very difficult to let go. You know, it's very, very difficult to, let's use a very typical Buddhist term, renounce things, to actually give them away. Um, I've said a number of times, actually, when I've been at Guy House, but I had the most amazing conversation over a couple of garden fences from mine a few years ago, which was this. It went roughly like this. Can I borrow such and such? And the person said, no, you can't borrow that. I don't even use it myself. <laughs> that can show you the depth of clinging. <laughs> it's very interesting listening over garden fences sometimes <laughs> to, to what passes for conversation but people deeply deeply cling to things that they don't actually need or require or even use um, the thing is we have to bring it home and actually look at this within our own lives it's very easy to point at others and see what they're doing and whilst this is humorous you know, we need to look at our own lives, at the things that we don't relinquish, at the things that we don't let go of any longer, um, because we are tied to them in some way, because they represent something for us. Now, these are fundamental misperceptions. These are fundamental distortions of what the Buddha calls outlook on life. The word he uses is ditti, which actually means a viewpoint or, or opinion. It can roughly be translated as a sense of outlook, the ways that we look at life. 
Now these distortions that the Buddha speaks of, the distortions that I mentioned in the quote, you know, seeing no change in the changing, seeing self in what is not self, seeing, you know, for example, the unlovely as lovely, seeing pleasure in what is actually painful. The word in Pali is the word vipalasa. It's an interesting word. I don't want to burden you with too much linguistics, but it's an interesting word. It's, it's derived, as many of these words are in Pali and Sanskrit, from a compounding of a number of different terms. The word vi in vipalasa means to divide. You know, the pala comes from a verb form which is actually related to perimeter in English. Uh, it's related to circumscribing something, turning something around. It's pari in Pali. And it comes with a verb, asa, which means to take up and then throw down. Putting all this together, and I've only given it to you very briefly, putting all this together, what vipalasa actually means is we take up something in our minds, turn it around and throw it back down again. As if it is the truth about the way they are. Yeah. So out of this little word, we get actually something that the human mind is fundamentally engaged in. It's actually taking things, and this word distortion actually is probably a good way of seeing in distorting them by turning them around and actually seeing them as completely opposite to the way they really are. Now I spoke a little bit last night about Nibbana, Nirvana, and one of the things I mentioned whilst going into that was that the Buddha's challenge to us was to awaken, was to actually wake up, not to become enlightened. I, you know, this is really just not a good translation of the, you know, of the Pali term. His challenge was to wake up. It's a very explicit challenge to all of us because it implies if we are not awakened, and that the Buddha himself is an awakened being, then most of us are pretty well asleep. Yeah. We have this sleep of confusion, this sleep of distortion, this sleep of ignorance, this sleep of delusion, however you want to call it. Occasionally, we might go... and then fall back asleep again. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally, we look up open our eyes. But most of the time we are pretty somnambulistic. We are sleepwalking through our lives. As sleepwalkers we engage, and I don't want to mix the metaphors too much, but as sleepwalkers we fundamentally engage in the same kind of habits again and again and again. You know, it's almost in our sleepwalking condition we wonder why we wake up with the same bruises, both literally and metaphorically. It's probably because we've walked into the same lamppost again and again and again. You know, because we actually haven't, in a sense, opened our eyes. So the Buddha's path, this path of meditation, this path, this journey that we enter into, albeit on a retreat or in our daily practice, is a path towards awakening in which there are many, many, many awakenings uh, which we can take heed of. Many, many moments when we start to unbind ourselves from habits of perception 
and distortions of mind whereby we wake up for that split second. That waking up process can be part of the long learning process that we have to engage in to become, in a sense, fully awakened. Now, the Buddha is often known as Sammasambuddhasa, which actually means a fully awakened being. Somebody who's totally waken up. Now, he's not woken up to some mystical, um, esoteric, nuministic experience. What he's woken up to is something very simple. In Pali, this is referred to as Yata Bhutang. Yata Bhutang actually means the way things are. This is what he's woken up to, the way things are. Not, as I say, to some mystical experience. This is, in a way, not a mystical path. I'm not saying that aspects of Buddhism don't become more mystical in their history, but the fundamental teaching of the Buddha, as it's, particularly as it's portrayed in the Pali Canon, is not mystical. It's very much just simply waking up to the way things actually are. I used the phrase the other day, not as we would like them to be. Yeah. not awakening to fantasy. That's no awakening at all. You know, we live fantastic lives. And living these fantastic lives, a lot of the time, these fantastic lives are full of pain, actually. They're full of um, dissatisfaction. They're full of suffering, to use the standard translation of the word dukkha. So we're not waking up to any kind of distortion. We're waking up to actually how they are. Now, if we read this list in a different way, you know, this is very negative. Sensing no changes change, uh, in the changing. Sensing pleasure in suffering. Assuming self where there is no self. Seeing the unlovely as lovely. Well, actually, we could say what we're waking up to is change, we're waking up to the actuality of dukkha, the actuality of it in our lives, the actuality of dissatisfaction, the actuality of our strategies to try and deal with the painful dimensions of life, the ways that we try to avoid that. We wake up to the fundamental lack of any fixity of self. To there being anybody, in a sense, who remains the static, individual, unchanging person whilst everything else is changing. And finally, we wake up to genuinely perceiving that which is unedifying as being unedifying, as unlovely. And many of the forms of human behavior that we see, we can genuinely look around, even from our standpoint now, and see them as very unlovely, just from an aesthetic point of view. If nothing else, even from our unawakened perspective, we can look at something like violence and see it as being extremely ugly, extremely unaesthetic, if nothing else. So we wake up to that. So this is what we're waking up to. To see change in the changing. Not to seeing no change in the changing, but to see change. Not to just hear that as a slogan, 
but to fully embrace it, to fully understand it, to fully comprehend it. This is what waking up is about. It's full comprehension. Uh, The Buddha talks about it as being, you know, placing ourselves in a position of being able to to direct our minds with wise attention to things. Again, a very interesting phrase in, in Pali, the term wise attention, yonaso manasakara. Manasakara is to pay attention. Yonaso, actually the word yoni in, in Pali and in Sanskrit, means a womb. Yeah, it refers to the womb. It refers to the origin of things. So in paying wise attention to things, we develop a form of attention that actually gets to the origin of things, that actually gets to their fundamental nature. And getting back to this fundamental nature is getting back to seeing change, to seeing impermanence, to really embracing it, as I say. Not as an intellectual experience. This is not an intellectual path, I might add. Um, The Buddha was a very, very practical thinker. He did not espouse a philosophy. Actually, that's what other people in India at the same time were doing. They were espousing philosophies. They were espousing metaphysical positions. Um, And he was deeply, deeply critical of all that. He was very, um, in many of his suttas, he's extremely parodic. He takes up their positions and he parodies them. He makes fun of them quite often. He didn't uh, teach anything that wasn't fundamentally something that we could grasp with our senses. And this means our six senses. With our, with our five normal senses plus our mental sense faculty as well. So anything that he speaks about has an entirely practical dimension to it. And is to be seen in that way. So when he speaks of change and beginning to perceive change, to see it, and to see this lack of perceiving change in the changing as being a distortion of our minds, then we begin with inquiry by paying wise attention to understand why we want to see this lack of change in the changing. I don't think it takes great minds, it doesn't take any great intellect to actually comprehend that. Actually, change, for the most part, particularly when it's you know, when it's not fruitful for us, is something which is quite frightening. Yeah. It is actually a position, particularly um, the way that is stated within the early Buddhist texts, that everything is changing. There is nothing that is untouched by change. Everything, including those who you're closest to and love, you know, ourselves, the world, everything is in flux. Everything is evanescent. Everything is rising and falling and passing away. It's just that some things do it quicker than others. When we look at our minds, our minds in their change are extremely rapid. One thought is overcome by another thought. And that thought, therefore, gives way to yet another thought and another thought. And this is happening extremely rapidly. We can slow down the process but actually we will never eradicate it. We will never eradicate one thought giving way to another thought. There are no thoughts which are permanent thoughts. 
when we look at our own bodies. You know, something I reminded myself on my birthday quite recently. My, haven't I changed? <laughs> you know, I look at uh, uh, every time it com- every time my face confronts myself in the mirror, I see change. You know? The German language poet Rilke, who I referred to last night in one of his Duino elegies, you know, referred to this change. He said that we are in this world forever taking leave. This is our position. He says, as human beings, we stand in the world like bowls of evaporating steam. This is the way that we are. We just simply are evaporating. Now, of course, we try and stem the tide of that as much as we can. We try to shore up ourselves against the change. We try to make secure households, secure places to live, which are seemingly um, immune to the ravages of time. The ravages of time, by the way, um, Nietzsche actually said the whole of philosophy has been the revenge against time, because it's often spoken about that which is unchanging as being the real. You know, we look for the real in that which is unchanging. You know, both Nietzsche, you know, the German philosopher, and the Buddha would be in agreement in this. There is no such thing. There is no such thing as an unchanging reality. The real is that which changes. And in many ways, we should celebrate it. Rather than being a cause for fear and all of the things that um, we don't like, about change, we should celebrate it. Because without change, you know, imagine having a permanent headache. Yeah. Imagine having a permanent pain. Some people do. You know, but it doesn't always remain at the same intensity. It changes. You know, imagine having it at the same intensity, at the worst intensity, and it didn't change. You know, we should celebrate it just from that point alone. We should also celebrate it because often the celebration is in the beauty of that which is transitory. Human life has a degree of beauty or often can have a degree of beauty because of its transitoriness. In what is lived in that life and what is brought to fruition in that life, there is a beauty there. The greatest... um, the greatest symbol of aesthetic beauty in Japanese aesthetics is cherry blossom. Some of you probably know this. Cherry blossom is the greatest symbol. In fact, um, Japanese people often travel all over the world um, to see cherry blossom. And they give daily reports on Japanese radio about where the cher- best cherry blossom is to be seen, like the weather reports. Um, New England during the fall period is full of Japanese people watching the leaves change and fall. So there is great beauty in change. Imagine what it would be like if we had cherry blossom all the time. We wouldn't probably take much notice of people because it's so important, it's so valuable to hear this, that actually to really, really understand impermanence in Nietzsche and to embrace it in the way that we are not distorting our view 
about it, not distorting our outlook, not trying to see something unchanging in something which is changing, then this has to become an embodied experience. This has to be something that's taken into almost at a cellular level of our being. Putting aside the deep tragedies that occur and will occur in our lives when we lose loved ones, you know, putting those aside for a second and just talking about the mundane transitoriness that we encounter in daily life. We encounter things that get broken, things that don't work any longer. Things that get lost, things that get stolen. Yet, you know, I'm saying to you something which I'm sure you'll probably all help nod your head in agreement to. Everything is changing. Yeah. Now, examine for yourself perhaps your own emotional reactions to things that get lost, broken, stolen, and simply don't work any longer. Yeah. Just examine your own you know, reactions often to those things. Really quite mundane things when they don't work. We often have a sense of supreme irritation, perhaps bordering on anger. Yeah. Certainly if something gets broken, you know, um, we can be extremely angry about that. It's my prized possession. It's got broken. You know, how can this be? Well, you know, it's actually, you know, Ajahn Chah, the great Thai master, said when you, know, you look at that cup, you see something which is whole. When I look at that cup, I see something that's already broken. Yeah. You know, already seeing it um, as something which is, in a sense, past. Because, actually, even if it outlives us at some point in time, it will change. It will get broken. You know, even the oldest human artifacts, none of them are intact. Often, most of them have to be reconstructed, put together again. And then we have a desperate attempt to hold them together, you know, in terms of you know, museum pieces. So, we are in this desperate search for something impermanent and unchanging world. You know, a world which is constantly changing and things are changing on us and heaven forbid people are changing on us too have you noticed that even those that you're closest to you know they'll do irritating things like say they don't like something when you knew they liked it you know they'll do these terrible things to you um just by being different by changing you know, so change is written into this world uh, yet we seek, through this distortion of perception, to find that which is unchanging within change. If we look hard enough, we won't find anything that is unchanging, including ourselves. You know, when we speak about, actually it's the third one in this list, when we speak about assuming self in that which is not self. In assuming an unfixed, unchanging self, um, well, isn't that rather arrogant? If, have you ever thought about this, actually? You know, it's, if we kind of look around the world and go, yeah, the whole world is changing. Everything is changing. Not me. <laughs> Doesn't it seem rather strange you know, that we have this position almost of arrogance of saying, I'm not changing. 
I'm always me. Be thankful that you are changing. Be thankful that you you can change because actually any of the problems that you might suffer from, the things that you want perhaps to let go of, with effort, particularly the path of meditative practice, can lead to change. In fact, that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to be a path of mental transformation, of changing our minds from being unwholesome to doing things and to perceiving things in unwholesome ways to a mind that is imbued with wholesomeness in this world. Now, if we weren't changing, then actually we might as well go home right now. There would be no point in doing what we're doing. It's only because we are changing that we can actually direct change. And this is what this path attempts to do. It attempts to direct the change in a particular way. So that the problems, whichever problems, or might be no problems, just that you want some more peace in your life, some more quietude in your life, something that you're looking for there. None of this would be possible if there wasn't change and that we couldn't direct our minds in particular ways. So assuming there to be a self where there is not a fixed self is a fundamental error of our perception. It gets us bound into all sorts of rigid perceptual states which are associated with actually I, me and mine. The Buddha gives us a little almost mantra in the early texts. He says every time we view something as arising, particularly thought processes, then this should be viewed as not I, not me, and not mine. So all of those thoughts, as I said yesterday, are just passing through. They're none of us me, they're none of us associated with I, with the possessive, and none of them are mine. They are literally transitory. They're transitory states. If we could inhabit that position, this position of the lack of distortion, without there being an I, me, mine associated with any fixity of self, think of what a liberation that would be. To liberate ourselves from the burden of being a self. Yeah. Self is a difficult business, if you've really noticed. It's really so, it's such hard work being a self in this world. You know, trying to hold yourself together. You know, even the word, trying to hold myself, I'm trying to hold myself together. What exactly does that mean? <laughs> yeah, I think we all understand what it means to a certain degree, but trying to hold a self together is an impossible task because it's changing anyway. Yeah. All we can do is perhaps try to redirect the change in more wholesome, more fruitful ways. So, to see impermanence, to see ourselves as caught up in that impermanence is really, really important. You know, this is fundamental to the Buddha's outlook. To see things, actually to see the world, to see pain as pain. Not to dodge it. The Buddha himself couldn't dodge pain 
One of the things that you get, if ever, and I often encourage people, if they haven't read them, to look at some of the Pali texts in their translated forms, is when you look at some of these texts, you see somebody who's very human, actually. You don't find a superman. You don't find somebody who's overcoming pain, who doesn't, you know, sort of experience physical pain at all. What you find is somebody who, from that point of view, is very human. He suffers um, from acute stomach pains. He suffers from the pains of growing old. In ancient India, to grow to the age of 80, which is the putative figure that's given around about the Buddha's age, was a very old age indeed. In fact, he jokes about it. He jokes about getting old. He says to his attendant Ananda, who I mentioned yesterday, you remember Ananda who is wailing uh, when the, the Buddha is dying? Uh, and the Buddha says to him, you know, have you actually listened to anything I've said? Um, but he says to Ananda, he says to Ananda one day, he said, you know, he said this, he, said, he always refers to himself as the Tathagata, which has a particular meaning, which I won't go into. But he said, the Tathagata these days, and this is towards the end of his life, he said, the Tathagata is just like an old cart. He's only kept going every morning by being strapped up. <laughs> you know, Uh, I recently did, actually, a trip through India and all of the places. I was taking pilgrims uh, around all the main sites in in, uh, the area where the Buddha taught. And when you see the vast distances that the Buddha was having to walk, you understand that he would have experienced a lot of physical pain. You know, just walking these huge distances on on a daily basis um, and resting for a period of time. But the ravages of doing that had its toll on him. Yeah. So he's very, very human from that point of view. So there is a reality that cannot be dodged to what the Buddha is referring to as dukkha. Yeah. There is a reality to it, just on the level of the physicality of the pain that we're going to receive. The pain, if you like, of aging the pain of sickness, literally the pains that come with sickness, um, but just the pain that come with life in general. We cannot control it. Yeah. If there's one thing that we know, that this life is not under our direct control. Yeah, we cannot control it. All we can do is try to direct our minds in such a way that it can responsively engage with it responsively engage with it rather than reactively engage with it which is of course part of the problem because these distortions of perception that I've been speaking about these distortions of perception are in a sense almost automatic they are the things that we bring we look and I'm only going to rest on this I'm going to finish it's in a few minutes but I just want to finish with this particular thing the reason why we are always grasping after some sense of permanence is we want certitude in our lives. We want some guarantee of certainty. We want some guarantee that that person, you know, let's just talk about it in the human relationships, that that person is going to be the same to me tomorrow as they are to me today. You know? So we look for some fixity in their character, some fixity in their behavior. Then we magnify it and say that's who they are. Yeah. We look for some certainty in the world around us. 
Actually, the world is full of uncertainty. Um, a Tibetan writer called Chogyam Trungpa once wrote about the wisdom of uncertainty. You know, there is a great wisdom to uncertainty. You know, living with the sense of uncertainty. Not knowing you know, that things will be the same. Actually, we live in very uncertain times. Just looking at our political, economic situation in the Western world at the moment, actually not just the Western world, the whole world at the moment, we live in very, very uncertain times. Yet we lived up until the point of the recession with a, a sense of certainty that these things were going to continue. Yeah. We live actually, um, even with our you know, plundering of the resources of the world, with a certainty almost that they're going to be there forever and that we can keep on taking them. Yeah. This is the kind of general consensual feeling that's often around when we don't apply ourselves with this, this wise attention that gets to the way things actually are as opposed to how we would like them to be. Because actually what we're saying is we would like there to be resources that go on endlessly. They would like there to be sufficient money in the you know, economic system, for that to go on forever, to provide us with the things that we want. Yeah. This is actually one word for it. I think it's called madness. <laughs> yeah. There is a madness to this. Um, if we don't bring ourselves into the realism of actually these things won't last forever. Yeah. That these things are impermanent. They are changing. So despite the fact that we can intellectually agree to this all too often, it's only skin deep. Our acquiescence yeah, to this particular proposition. When we start to scratch under the surface or to begin to look just below the surface of that intellectual uh, apprehension of impermanence, we find actually we're still looking for certainty in some way or another. What I would say to you is check it out. Check it out in your own life and see if that's the case. Are you looking for certainties? Are you looking for guarantees? Are you looking for something which isn't changing in your own life? Yeah. If you are, then actually it's often the prelude to a fall. Um, because the, you know, if the world is changing in the way that the Buddha says it is, and if we don't apprehend it, literally apprehend it, begin to see it, begin to see it in even almost the Ajahn Chah sense of beginning to see already things are, in a sense, already broken, even if they're not physically broken at this moment in time, then we are setting ourselves up for a great deal of pain in the future psychologically. Because things will change. There is no doubt about that. Now, what I'll do is I'll pick up on the last few of these um, distortions of perception tomorrow night before I move into something else. Um, but I just want to leave you with that thought. Look at the change within your life. Do you embrace that change or do you resist it? Yeah. In the embracing of the change, 
in the movement towards it rather than away from it, there can be a sense of peace. In what might prima facie seem actually a frightening state, everything is changing. I mean, it could be terrifying to us. When we begin to embrace it, then we have to, when we can move to a position where we cease to look for constant control over things. Then it can become a resting there. As I came across this little quotation, again, which I've said many, many times these days, but I still like it, which is, uh, I'll leave you just with this thought. It's a little quotation. I wish I'd written it myself. Again, I, it's not my coinage. Um, I don't actually know who wrote it at all, but I, I quite like it, which is, relax. Absolutely nothing is under control. Okay, thank you. Okay, 15 minutes leg stretch and walk, and then back for the final sit at quarter two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.